0: Got it. Welcome to Window Gazing Podcast, the podcast where two TikTokers um, try to stay on the same subject for one episode. This episode is on retirement. Um, <laughs> I have wanted to talk to you about this for a long time. I feel like one of the um, main parts of your content that I really resonated with is you talking about um how our generation was promised um economic security and buying a house and being able to retire and how we have gotten none of that and you talk really openly about it um and i have no outline this time because i know that we're just gonna be easily able to talk like at length about this um what i sort of wanted to start with is like what was canada's plan for like this working perfectly like what was the millennial life supposed to look like if if they had any plan for us to like be okay when we're old
1: well uh without immediately boring our audience um we had something called the um uh, registered retirement savings plan. And, uh, so this is like basically the Canadian version of the 401k. Uh, I assume, I think that's what it is in the U S right. That's like your retirement or, or the IRA. I don't know which, I don't know enough about the U S anyway. So the whole idea was as, um, you know, cradle to grave employment began to kind of, um, become less and less common uh after surprise the 1980s and the reagan thatcher you know brian mulroney in canada uh triple triple effect um i think the canadian what government her,
0: what was your president's name
1: uh prime minister uh, uh brian mulroney he was like a uh conservative um,
0: okay. and that was when we had um when there was uh margaret thatcher and then what was the other person you said
1: I think I meant to say Ronald Reagan if I didn't say oh, Ronald Reagan, okay. yeah.
0: All the same cusp, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, but you know, like basically in the 1980s, the whole sort of notion that you would have one job or two jobs and that you could sort of seamlessly stay in those jobs from, from cradle to grave kind of began to dissolve. And so, and people began to uh, job hop a lot more. And I think there was a reaction in the federal government in Canada and they realized, well, this idea that the um, pensions would... um. You know, would would help people in retirement became less uh, viable, and on top of that, uh, pensions obviously are extremely heavy labor cost on companies, and, if, and you know we can't have companies pay for human beings like that. That gets in the way of profits. So, of course, the uh, government thought, well, what we'll do is we'll um, we can have these registered retirement savings plans. And essentially you just, you put into the plan, you can't withdraw until you retire without massive massive tax penalties. And, you know, uh, the the banks sort of use them as these investment vehicles. And I think so the idea from the Canadian government was that this would sort of eventually replace um, the need for pensions. But of course, anytime you have uh, any sort of social security that is voluntary, you're basically immediately... Uh, condemning people who face precarious unemployment or, you know, uh, face high standard, high costs of living or unexpected costs. Um, They're in a position where, you know, the last thing that they're going to be able to afford to do is to um, invest in an RRSP, as we call them up here. Um, and so anytime you read like finance blogs in Canada, you get these finger wagging scolds who are like, well, you have to invest a certain amount in your RSP because it's a tax write off. And you, you know, you max, you should max it out every year as if people have tens of thousands of dollars of dispensable income to invest in their retirement.
0: Yeah. So, we, we have oh, that in the, the Roth IRA. If you make a certain amount, um, under it's it used to be like 120,000 a year, then you could invest your uh, retirement savings tax free and you could in some cases cash them out in special cases if you buy your first home um, without a tax penalty.
1: Yeah, so. precisely the same, precisely the same. like for example, so this is the other issue um, and it's really tied strongly with it is uh, we have the same thing where there's an incentive you can you can withdraw a certain amount. I think it's up to uh, I want to say, 30,000 of your RSP um, with no penalty to use for the down payment I think it has to be a first time like first-time home buyer down payment um so you can withdraw from your RSP and that's kind of the federal government being like wink wink nudge nudge the surefire investment in this country is real estate and that's probably going to be your main source of retirement safety as opposed to you know, a pension or even your RSP at this rate. So so that's the situation we're in. Now I wish I had come to this podcast armed with hard numbers on this, but I just know from anecdotal experience uh that um this plan isn't working out exactly <laughs> uh for everyone. And so I think there's a, a growing realization that a lot of people are just not going to be on track to stop working by the time they reach their their senior years.
0: Yeah. And um Yeah, I was just curious, like what you saw as the ideal situation, because that's exactly exactly what's happening in the US, almost the exact same planning. Um, And now what really happened, um, or maybe what was meant to happen all along, the way that I see that switch over from pensions um, to Roth IRAs and 401ks is... um, Essentially, you know, in the late 1970s, 1980s, we have this fundamental switch over from um, a capitalism that is really working and productive and abundant to a capitalism that's not really working anymore. And so we need to switch over to some like quantitative easing slash um, banking sector growth slash just like quantitative funny business in all different ways to essentially harvest money that already exists out of the populace out of the there's no productivity being made so there's all kinds of things that happen during this time pensions switching over to stock market investment being one of them where it's like okay um clearly we're not going to be able to grow at this rate forever so we gotta like do some stuff that's like kind of weird and um uh, it's essentially a harvesting system of the um, the wealth that already exists, and I think today we can really see it. Of just like, wow, since the nineteen eighties, I think wages haven't even gone up. We're just in- expanding credit every year. How long can we just expand credit and expand credit? Um, and uh, one of my um, favorite uh, writers wonder if i would like his writing now i haven't read one of his books in a few years but um he was a hedge fund manager for a short period of time and he he said the stock market is a tax on the middle class um it is <laughs> hey everybody buy into this idea um and invest your money here um so that the rich can make out like bandits. That's essentially the way that I see that now. Um, I also, I only talk to millennials who um, have not had good success with this. So I don't know if you know any millennials who are like, I've got $200,000 in my retirement account. I'm doing great. I own a house.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. Because, you know, living in Toronto, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't realize it's the fourth largest city in North America. And it's also one of the the wealthiest. So if you grow up in Toronto, chances are, you know, people who are doing very well, right? And I think the median, it's either the average or the median income in that city is now like, I think it's over $100,000 in the downtown core. So like, there's a lot of wealthy people there. And, and this is the whole thing with retirement, like voluntary retirement works. If you have a living wage, right? Like if you have enough money that you can pay for housing comfortably, pay for the cost of food comfortably, pay for childcare comfortably, pay for healthcare comfortably. And then after all that, you you can have disposable income to invest in your own retirement, then yes, you are doing well. But that's what all of these things are predicated on. And this is why, um, you know, whenever I get in arguments about, oh, dirty socialism versus uh, innovative, brilliant capitalism, it's like, uh, capitalism, you just end up paying for the same things that you would end up paying, like you pay for it through taxes in socialism anyway. You just pay for them vastly more inefficiently, right? So like the cost for a whole generation of people who can't afford to retire and have to keep working, uh, you pay through that through, um, you know, more health care because these people are healthier. They're under a greater, greater amount of stress and precarity, and so they're relying on the hospital system more. And in Canada, that means we have a, you know, dwindling public health care system. So that puts even more pressure on it and therefore more pressure on taxpayers to cover it. You know, there's all sorts of other uh, costs that go into that. Uh, it's a lot more difficult to care for people who are living in isolation um, and in reliance on like piecemeal work to live. Um, so like the societal costs, if we don't pay for, you know, pay for people's retirement through the traditional means that we used to. Uh, and in Canada, we have like a Canada pension plan, like the federal government is supposed to help us when we when we retire, and they do very, very nominally, but the, the ability for of that plan just to meaningfully support people has, has sort of dwindled over the years. So now it's just really a top up, right?
0: It's the same um, our social security
1: system that was put in place in the 1930s. Is that when yours was put in place too? I think it was a little later. I mean, again, I'm I'm not a I'm not a historian of Canada's uh, social safety net, but yes, that's my understanding. It was sort of part and parcel with the, uh, you know, and again, all of these policies we have to remember were driven not by the beneficence of the our collective federal governments, but was over fear of losing workers to radicalization. Right. So this is something we need to keep in mind. Like. As much as you can hate leftists as a capitalist, but you really do owe them your thanks for many, great many things that we sort of take for granted. Um, But one of the things that we, well, sorry, go ahead. Well, you're
0: starting to hit on something that I think is at the root of this issue that I think um, is, like, when I stand back, I go, okay, not every country is as affluent as the countries we're talking about. How do they deal with old people? There are old people everywhere. It turns out they have social safety nets in the form of families that are tight knit. And what we have seen um, in our part of the world is like, as it seems to me, as we became financially uh, more abundant, we became our social ties became way weaker and we became isolated human beings. And all of a sudden Um, a lot of the glue between people had to do with money. And there was like this thing about individuality and, um, you know, a sign of adulthood was like moving out from your family on your own to have your own economic unit. And we were like, okay, um, we will pay for you in your old age by you, you will pay for you, nobody will take care of you, you won't, your family won't have to look after you. Um, And so I think as people are less able to have retirement, we'll see those social safety nets come back in. Um, But it's this really weird gully that we're in where most of us were raised in that society of um, economic security through um, individuality, through um, bootstrapping yourself, right? Um, Pulling yourself up, supporting yourself. But at the end of our lives, we're not going to have that social safety net that most people would have grown up in, if they had um, been in the economic circumstance that we're going to be in um, when we're older. And like, I don't know if you look at it like this, but I, I don't know, I look at the environment, I look at the, um, the decline that we are um, most likely ahead of. And I go, I don't think the environment is ever going to be better than it is today. I don't think that circumstances are going to be better than they ever are today. Only decline or plateau. And it makes it really hard to want to save any money for the future. I'm like, fuck you. It's never going to get any better.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's that's absolutely true. Like, there's this deep cynicism now with even the idea of like investing in a retirement plan because there's a sense of like, well, you know, wh- where am I going to live in the crater that is the next, you know, the next uh, 50 years or whatever? Um, but interestingly, in Canada, I mean, even beyond the environmental picture, which probably get pretty bad, you know, by the mid century. Uh, before that, at least in this country, there's the there's the other crisis of the age crisis, right? And I actually happen to know a lot about this because of my work, um, where I've done, you know, I've done proposals related to projects that are focused on on caring for or innovations in caring for the elderly. But in doing that research, I read all this st- statistics about the age crisis in this country, and that Canadians are aging very, very fast, and our our over sixty five demographic is kind of exploding and we're in this dangerous mix now where so we don't have adequate retirement savings for people who are either just entering retirement or on the cusp of entering retirement that's one the second thing is that this country has relied on real estate as this sort of um, bastion of wealth like it makes up a huge percentage of our gdp and it sort of has uh, slowly over time with like neglect has come to replace what used to be a t- traditional social safety net as like the sort of nest egg for older adults, but that nest egg is under threat now because uh we because of runaway inflation, we've had to raise interest rates and now house values are dropping across the country. And so there's this sense of like, uh, how, you know, is this actually going to be a reliable savings vehicle for for the long-term future? Um and it's also like, it's also hamstrung us to create the housing that we actually need in this country because people see their housing not as a place to live, but as a commodity in which they need to rely on to take, take out home equity loans in order to pay for their retirements, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this horrible mix of things. and Even in the short term, like we don't have enough... Um, we, we're not even having enough children to replace the population that's aging. So we have an aging population. Some of which have to rely on work. Some of which will ha- have no choice but to not work, not because they have enough retirement, but simply because there's no other option. They their their bodies have fallen apart, and they'll need to be cared for. Um, and that population is is growing much much faster than 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 you know uh, children in this country. And so we're in this mix of like it's it's sort of like look it's it could be a a pretty nasty economic disaster. And that's before all the environmental consequences begin to come to the fore, too. So yeah, it's not looking very good, you know. And you've seen my content, like I constantly talk about How we treat children as second class citizens, but like the way we treat elderly people, um, I think we're not supposed to say that anymore. Older Canadians is the the euphemism we use. The way they treat them is like shameful, shameful, shameful. We do not want them in public spaces. We do not want to cater to their interests. Uh, We want them out of sight as quickly as possible without the adequate uh, investment in their care to ensure that their final user is dignified as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we are way, way, way behind on ensuring like this generation of older Canadians is adequately cared for. Um, And so like uh, and just nobody seems to care, you know, so. And, and it's like, yes, I know all the jokes about boomers and, you know, they lived high on the hog at our, our generation's expense. I agree to some degree with all of that stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that, like, if elder generations are neglected and treated horribly and relied and don't have enough adequate res- like savings for retirement, that affects everyone. That affects all of society and those costs are borne by everyone.
0: Yeah, it's a really bad sign for your society when you can't take care of the ill, the ailing, the old. It's actually one of the first signs of um, like civilization in archeology span when they find people who have like broken legs that have healed. And so I kind of think that way is like, oh, we're devolving a little bit when people are left behind that could easily be taken care of with some planning. Um, I think it speaks to our economic value system that we are not nice to people who are not economically productive and we tend to have a caste system of valuing people based on how much money they make um it's been so interesting switching from being a marketing consultant where I just talk to business people I have like a lot of cold calls and sales calls with people. Um, to working as a barista in the lobby of a hotel where a lot of business people are coming through and they treat me so differently. I'm the same person um, and I'm treated so differently because of the position I'm in. And it's so uh, fascinating to see that before my very eyes. Um, like, interesting, if you had me on a business call, you'd be treating me very different. <laughs> um Yeah. As far as outlook for the future, um, like I write down value lists and I'm like, should I rethink this? Like really should I think about saving for my retirement again? I was really focused on it in my twenties. It was almost a game for me. I was very good at it. I used to write a financial planning blog. That's why I know so much about this stuff. And it's It's why I feel confident in being very dark and ominous about it because I understand it pretty well um, and I've investigated it pretty thoroughly for myself and kind of what I've come to is, um, yeah, man, I think that they have pulled the wool over our eyes as much as they could to get us to cooperate for their plan, which is basically to harvest more and more value out of the populace um hoping that nobody would organize and at least here in portland we're seeing a ton of union support a ton of organizing happening i don't know if that's happening in canada too
1: yeah uh i think there's echoes of that that are happening in this country like there's definitely a lot of union solidarity um but you know i think um i think one of the problems is and i think one of the sort of propaganda victories of the neoliberals in the last sort of 20 years has been sort of attempting to uh view uh the retirement age and the you know care for elderly people through the lens of financial responsibility personal financial responsibility yeah and i always say like this is the fatal flaw of of conservatism as a as an ideology is that it It tries to run society based on ought tos, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that you ought to uh, put away a certain amount of money every month in order to cover your retirement, Um, but like the the level, the like the sheer number of ought tos we've created now for like individual people living in capitalism, and the fact that we've never allowed the actual availability of uh, and stability of income, the size of the income that people make the the sort of relative job security that they have that is never entered into the equation you're just always supposed to magically budget yourself to health and safety so like if you think of all the ought to's in an individual person let's like start with someone who's in a family like uh you ought to only spend 30 percent of your income on your housing okay good luck right from right off the bat you need to make sure that you find a place to live uh, that is somehow 30% of whatever your job's income is. And so good luck finding a job that pays you that much or a housing that doesn't cost that much. Uh, you ought to be able to afford uh, children before you decide to have them, uh, which of course now, like like everyone's surprised, like of course we have plummeting birth rates because people are actually taking that advice and realizing they will never be able to afford childcare for their children and, sh- and so we'll never have them, Right. Um, And then you ought to make sure that you don't spend more than a certain amount on groceries, despite the fact that we're suffering like uh, historical food inflation at the moment. And then you ought to make sure that, you know, I guess this is more of a U.S. thing, but, you you know, you make sure that you're covered for insurance for health matters and that your your work properly covers your health insurance and you ought to stay healthy so that you don't get sick and have to go to hospital. Yeah,
0: they got us on one extra one that you guys... Got we didn't get
1: it's a really bad extra one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's I've heard that it like a lot of you guys don't like it. I can't imagine like um like if I had diabetes um in Canada, would I be able to get insulin? Like would I be okay?
1: Yeah, you'd be okay. You would get insulin. Yeah.
0: Insulin costs like so much. I don't have health insurance. And it's funny, um, because it's in my family and my mom has shown up with like a uh, screwy a1c numbers and i'm like shit i cannot get diabetes um and it is just a reality here and it's one more thing that they've put on our personal responsibility um smorgasbord and i was talking to my mom because my my mom is horribly burnt out and i was having a conversation with her i was like You know, I think we, like a lot of people in our family are autistic. I think you are probably autistic. I think that you have suffered your entire life to burn yourself out to try to make enough money. You have never made enough money. Do you, have you felt ever that you've had enough money, even in all the amazing jobs that you've had? And she was like, no, um, I really should start saving for my retirement. And I was like, no, no it's not possible to save for your retirement. Aren't you angry? Like, why have you taken on this personal responsibility onto yourself? This is something that, um, you are not capable of taking on and you'll be guilty about it the rest of your life that you're not able to do it.
1: But that's what it is. Like, um, like people, individual people feel like failures. Like they feel like yes. the modern day sin is, is uh not having taken adequate responsibility for your financial situation. I mean, look at the popularity of people like Dave Ramsey's, like scolding yes. people in their 60s. And of course, he always takes the outlier example of like someone who's particularly egregiously financially irresponsible. But the 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 psychological effect on the listener is exactly the same. It's like you you become introspective, you start to question decisions that you've made. You look at the last 40 years and you take it on yourself. Like I, the only person I have to blame for my situation is me, but this is like a terrible way to run a society, right? Like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like blaming, uh, you know, the, where the direction of the wind blowing for the weather and getting really angry, you know, it's just like, it's very silly. And so this has always been my argument for like socialist policies or at least democratic socialist policies as a norm, because, um, as opposed to teach like treating society as a collection of individual moral agents who have all sort of either collectively or succeeded or failed to some degree, it just treats society as sort of weather patterns that have some measure of predictability. Like predictably, if you expect people to be personally responsible for investing in their Roth IRAs or their RRSPs, a lot of them are just going to fail. And some are going to fail because they're irresponsible. Most of them are going to fail just because... They have a ton, a ton, a ton of things they have to pay for, and retirement is probably last on the list, right? Psychologically, that makes sense. I'm I'm on the older side too. I'm like 42. Uh, even to me, like retirement feels abstract, you know? It feels like a sort of strange future state that I'll be in. And of course, most human beings would feel this way. So this idea that people would be like, oh, of course I would save for retirement is just not realistic. Um, but what people don't foresee is that we don't, it's not just a matter of like, well, I say I helped myself and you didn't. So, you know, it's like the, the Aesop's fablers or, or whatever, you know, like you should have collected nuts in the winter and you didn't, it's on you. Yeah. In fact, what happens is we all collectively bore, like bear the costs of a generation of elderly people who cannot afford to care for themselves and must rely on work to yeah. keep going. You know, it's a, it's to the degradation of society, um, both financially and morally. Right. So, um, Anyway, yeah, I, I so I think a big part of this sort of, sort of failure of retirement and our inability to get past talking about it is um, is because, sorry, just one second here, is because um, is because we're still stuck in this mindset that uh, uh, retirement is 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 about you individually as a person making the decision, the active decision to sacrifice in order to uh, pay for their future retirement. And this is just a very, very ineffective way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, I, I have no notes. I <laughs> agree. My grandma is in that situation. She's actually 72. She's never had any retirement savings. Um, she has lived with her boyfriend for the last 20 years. Her boyfriend wouldn't marry her. Um, and we've always assumed just like, what are we gonna do with grandma? um, when she gets older, I guess she'll move in with my mom. And my mom was like, she drives me crazy. She can't move in. Um, and I think a lot of people are probably in that situation and, um, yeah, the baby boomers are aging. Um, it's interesting. Most of my grandparents that were going to die, um, like sick deaths died in their sixties. So I have, um, one grandpa who died, but the rest of them are alive and they're like pretty fairly healthy. Um, And I don't know, I think the dream of every young person is just like, I mean, I'm not going to live that long, you know, and everybody thinks that and then they just live, you know, they don't take care of themselves and then they just live for a long time, but sick. Um, I don't know what they're going to tell people um, when they can't pay for their health care. I like to think that... um, what like what I feel sort of in my bones is that there is going to be another wave of socialism similar to how there was in the 1930s and that's why um as the decline happens as older people die and we can finally have more voting power um that's why I have a little bit of wonder at like maybe I'm incredibly short-sighted to say there is only going to be decline there is not going to be anything better after this economically because i think people felt that way very much in the early 30s um uh, you read the great the grapes of wrath and he's he has this portrait of a tractor um plowing over the dusty field and how it has you know taken all of the resources from the field and the people are paid to operate the tractor and there's no life in it anymore there's no life in anything. Um, And, you know, you have that portrait and then you have a time of great abundance after that, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And so I wonder if, like, am I looking out at a Dust Bowl in the 1930s, but actually there is another time of abundance that I don't understand or see? um, That's also possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because... You know the fight in the nineteen thirties. Obviously, you had you had yes, you had the Great Depression aligning with this tremendous period of sort of man-made or man-encouraged drought in the in the in the Dust Bowl in the mid Midwest. Uh, and I think there was a sense that um, that there was still this fight, right? That that I think workers still identified as workers that they collectively understood what their struggle was. They collectively understood that someone else was making profit on their labor and that they weren't receiving you know, they weren't receiving any sort of meaningful compensation for that. And it was very stark, right? Like, there's a reason why, like, people in unions uh, were willing to fight and die, like literally die in street battles with police officers in order to get their rights, because uh, the alternative was like a life of literal misery and abject subjugation, right? And And so- And now
0: we we seem to have this wool pulled over the eyes that that people don't see themselves that way and that is a fantastic triumph of just story um but who i i don't know exactly who has constructed it whoever um would benefit from that power apparently the owners of production um but the um i don't know if it's it's from that book it might be from east of eden but referring to people as um, seeing themselves as temporary, bro- temporarily broke millionaires.
1: Um, yeah, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. I yes, notice. temporarily
0: embarrassed millionaires. And yeah. that is how people see them, how the workers see themselves now. And it's the rich class saying, no, you're part of our class. You should vote with our interests because you are one of us.
1: Yeah, like I think... You know, we, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but you know, I think the what, what happened was you had obviously the the mobilization of World War II and this like tremendous patriotic moment in the history of the US, and then these GIs coming home, and then they were finding themselves able to have the dream of a normal job that would probably required a high school education or at most an undergraduate degree. Uh, that paid a living wage that allowed them to afford a home and, and you know, afford university for their kids. And this sort of wonderful sort of maybe 20, 30 year period in the mid 20th century. Which turns out
0: I, was an anomaly.
1: Yeah, it was a total anomaly. And obviously, I think led to this sense of like in the 1980s that that uh, that if we just like, got rid of the shackles of government regulation and, and banking regulation, we could make even more money, right? Like it was just they got that taste of comfort and they wanted more. Right. And so that led to the sort of degrading like neoliberal, the last 40 years of neoliberal degradation that, that has sort of got us to this point now. And I agree with you. I think there's going to be some sort of I think it's going to be messy because there's still it's still there's but I think I think this is the mentality and this is why just coming back to what we were talking about earlier. I think this is why people Uh, Like in their 60s at the moment, maybe late 60s, early 70s even, they still feel this like um, they refuse to accept that they had a raw deal because they know how good they had it. But they assume that that's the norm and they assume that what they went through to get their jobs, to pay for their housing, they assume that that's what everyone has to do with and that, that society, society hasn't changed or the amount that people are able to make hasn't changed or working conditions haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is like the work ethic of like the younger generations, right? And they still really believe this stuff, which means they're still willing to vote for Republican governments and things like that. So, and I, I think, think it's
0: they, also- They won't make out like bandits either in the end though, because their wealth is being inflated away anyway by economic yeah. instability, so-
1: but I think like you were mentioning, uh, you know, this person is like, there's a refusal to, to say, to sort of see their circumstances, like getting a raw deal. They'll never say that They'll, you know mm-hmm. what, this is my fault. Right. And it's interesting. Like I, you know, I just want to touch on this a little bit. Cause I think it's interesting to me at least is that, you know, most modern day people, when they think of the idea of sin, it's like hilarious, right? This idea yeah. that you can commit some sort of moral bad and God, and you'll feel guilty for it. Like I think a lot of people think of the idea of Catholic guilt and it seems like a sort of amusing or curious curious anomaly, right? But like all you have to do is like consider uh, your financial history and the financial mistakes that you've made and your personal sense of like owning those things. That's what sin is like, right? and it's 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 another myth. It's this other it's this other moral myth that your financial situation is entirely down to your inability to get the right education, get a higher paying job. Be smarter about putting more money of your way before you spend it on yourself. All this list of things that that the same propagandists w- will, for years and years and years, adamantly claim is the responsibility of individual people and not like just a, a, a sort of byproduct of a society in which workers generate wealth for a, an ownership class, right? So. Um, but again, boomers don't see it that way. And so they'll they'll never sort of see the collective element of the situation they're in. And they'll probably go to the grave waving the American flag and, and being happy for their freedoms and free enterprise and capitalism, even though they're like having to work at a Wendy's until they're, you know, in their early 80s. You know what I mean? And you see this, you see this on these, these like heroic segments on the nightly news of like the old lady who's like retiring at 92 and she's worked at like, you know, uh, Burger, Burger King, King drive through Yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah I don't understand the um total allegiance to an ideology I'll never understand that but I think you're right I think they will go to the grave um they were tremendously um I don't know if I want to say manipulated but they were given definitely a different origin story than we have had um there's a guy that talks about um like community building and um Uh, he talks about like systems collapse and climate change. And um, one of the things that he said is like, um, it's going to be very hard to see uh, as like society sort of breaks down because it's a complex system. But what it actually kind of looks like is when you stand back and you're like, wow, nothing has really gotten better for like 30 years yeah interesting every year model of car that they make is worse than the previous year model that's what complex systems collapse looks like is nothing ever seems to be getting better in such a weird way um and i think about like the advancement of our society because there's like two uh, competing factors one of them is um becoming increasingly technological and increasingly technology based. And then the other one is like return to farms and return to like local agriculture. And they seem like two completely opposite influences. And um, I don't really know how to square those things in my mind. Um, And I don't understand what our advancement is going to look like. There's definitely like, um, in like archaeology and like the study of human societies, there are whole periods of time where they were like they didn't. This society didn't make any progress for like four hundred years. They just did, stayed the same. And I'm like, interesting. I wonder if we're just going to stay the same, but like shittier, or if there's going to be like some massive collapse. I have no idea. Um, yeah, that was kind of a kind of a rant.
1: Well, no, I mean it's uh you know it's interesting. Like, and I think again we've talked about this. Like the interesting development in the 20th century where there's like a very like the difference between the 1960s and the 1990s is vastly bigger culturally and technologically and otherwise between 1990 and today right like this is something you and i have talked about on this this podcast as well Um, so there is definitely a stagnance but like there's also just a sense now that i think people are realizing that the way we've organized how we are supposed to get by as an individual in society is totally dysfunctional. And, and if people looked at objectively 40 or 50 years ago, they would be like, how do you even survive? Like, well, it would be the same
0: thing again with the moral conversation. It would be the same thing. If the church came to you and said, "Um, you are not functioning within the system that we've given you. You're very sinful. You are not operating well. Um, Yeah. And for that person to just completely take it on like, oh, I'm not adhering to the Bible at all. Right. And we look at those people and we're like, wow, those people are so traumatized. Right. Yeah.
1: But I think the difference is that now, like let's say you were brought up in the 1950s, 1960s, society seemed to work like a machine. Like it was pretty, you know, uh, Reliable. Yeah. It was reliable. If you were an upstanding, good, normal person, didn't have to be particularly brilliant, but you just had to have sort of a sense of personal responsibility. You could get very, very far on very, very little. You can just, you know, get a job out of high school. Um, You could pay for most things. You could pay for your house. You could easily pay for groceries. You wouldn't even have to worry about savings for retirement because you'd have a pension with a good company that was productive and profitable and was not trying to thousand X itself. It was just trying to become a sustainable enterprise. Uh, And now, like if you look at the environment, the employment environment in the U.S. in particular, uh, you know, it requires maximum specialization, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in investments and loans in education, even to get a chance to get your resume through the door, Uh, a system in which we're relying on this like digital um, application system for jobs in which people are applying for 200, 300, 400 jobs and getting one reply back, maybe an interview if they're lucky. Um, this sort of fringe economy of like gigs, gig economy stuff of like, you know, uh, rating products online or doing copywriting on Fiverr for a few pennies at a time or, um, you know, uh, delivering Uber Eats or whatever, like this sort of fringe economy that is becoming more and more a mainstay of how people actually generate the most of their living income. And so, I think if anyone looked at this from the 1960s, it would be horrific. They wouldn't even know how to navigate because, not because they necessarily don't understand, like, I don't like, they wouldn't know what coding is, obviously. But the idea of having to go to school for a sub middle class job, Mm -hmm. go to school for six years and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, which you have to pay back in loans, you know, with interest over a huge long period of time. It would be a horror show. And they would rightly, I think, be jarred enough to say, this is not fair. This is a raw deal. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it's happened over such a slow period. And people have still bought this sort of American mythos that if you're a normal, upstanding, morally responsible person, you can get a job and live. Uh, They still think that that's true, even when it objectively is not. Do you think Um,
0: Canadians spiritually see themselves different than that? um ideology or that like statement that you just made
1: i think uh i think that we don't have that inbuilt work ethic you know the the sort of protestant work ethic mentality that exists Mm. in the united states uh but uh we do have um you know we do have like this uh sense that we have a deal we have a deal with government we have a deal with the companies that are in this country and the deal is is like uh we'll take a certain amount of shit if you guys take care of us right and so the the deal was for a long time that you know um you could live comfortably anywhere in the country you could afford a, your own home and and you would be par- paid a fair living wage you wouldn't necessarily be living on high on the hog i think there's also certainly less of a culture of temporarily embarrassed millionaires in this country i 100% believe that like there's just not the same entrepreneurial hustle culture in, in in the US. It's not the same in Canada at all. You don't find that. There's a very much a sense of like, most people are you're just a normal person. You're a good person. You want to do a good job. You want to be paid a living wage for your job and you want to go home and that's it. Right. Um, but I think people are starting to see that deal crumble because um, the things that we used to take for granted in this country that if you worked hard enough and you saved well enough, you could afford a home. Like that's all gone out the window in the last 20 years. So I think it's different. It's a subtle difference, but I think a lot of the broad themes are still the same.
0: Yeah. Um. Again, completely agree with you. Um. Yeah, I don't, I have not met that many Canadians. I always feel like I'm bragging to people when I'm like, oh, my podcast co-host is in Canada. How exotic. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really, Real. Real. Uh pretty milk toast up here um it's sort of like i think america's hat is the best best description america's
0: hat yeah. somebody another canadian i might have already told this story but um uncouver uh said the relationship between americans and canadians is kind of like his relationship with what's happening in greenland and i was like what is happening in greenland he's like i have no idea
1: <laughs> yeah yeah uh you know i think there's there's a very, there's a, a deep seated sense in this country that we have an asymmetrical knowledge relationship that America, mm-hmm. like Canadians know. I know so much about the United States. Like I can name you state govern like governors, like I can name state capitals. I can name wow. probably four or five cities in every single, you know, and, and mon- I don't even
0: know that your president is called prime minister.
1: Yeah. So we have a parliamentary democracy here and not, right. not a, yeah
0: they say in um well i've heard this in the context of feminism but i think it comes from like race theory um that the marginalized group always knows a lot about the um group that is in power so if you look at women and men women know a lot about the emotional dynamics of men and what's going on with men men don't know very much about women um the same thing with like um people who are like minority quote unquote minority races um know a lot about white people culture white people don't know a lot about their culture um so yeah it's a really interesting thing to talk about in the context of like americans and canadians but americans um don't know much about canadians because they find them kind of irrelevant Um, and our i don't know if you know that like our mythology around canadians just like they're really nice Um, Yeah, which
1: you know, we are really we're really nice to Americans. We're not necessarily nice to each other. I think that's that's, funny. Takeaway: There is. I don't
0: know if you saw my comment on your video when you were on. Um, your Veterans Day is called something else, but I think you must have it on the same day.
1: Yeah, it's Remembrance Day. That's what we call it, and And it's because. Go ahead. Well, it's 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 uh, I think the name is the same in the United Kingdom, but it's basically celebrating the uh, armistice, the World War One armistice. And that's why it's on November 11th. Um, But yeah, no, I think um, I think it was Pierre Burton. I I might be misquoting him, but uh, he I think he came up with this great analogy of like uh, being Canadian is like and above the U S is like sleeping next to the elephant, you know, like the elephant doesn't feel us at all, but if the elephant just shuffles a little, we, we feel it. Right. So that's always the analogy we use. But I think as far as like the topic of this podcast is concerned, there are certain similarities, certain cultural expectations that I think we both kind of share. And, um, and, uh, and I think there's certain, you know, like there's knock on effects, right? Like, obviously I don't think Canada would have the social safety net it has without someone like Franklin Delano Roosevelt being president of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we have done things on our own, uh, like, you know, uh, Tommy Douglas and 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 his, so Tommy Douglas was the premier of Saskatchewan in the, I think the 1940s and 50s. And he's the person who came up with Canada's first uh, provincial public healthcare system that eventually became the model for the country. So, so, so there's there's some deviations, um, but I would also say, without looking at it, I'm not going to look at. It, I would, I'm pretty certain that we have a much higher uh, ratio of o- older people in this country um, than the United say. States. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: Uh, but the United States has that problem too. Their baby, our baby boomer generation, um, was big, and then we had an echo generation with the millennials. So it sounds like your millennial generation wasn't as big as ours.
1: Yeah, that's part of it. Um, and we've also always had, uh, you know, like I've always said before, like Canada, despite it's, uh, you know, the stereotype of like rolling fields of, you know, of, of fir trees and lumberjacks, we're an extremely urban country, right? Like the vast mm-hmm. majority of this country lives in four cities. Um, and so what happens is we actually have quite a rural elderly population. Like I'm in Nova Scotia, for example, and this population is extremely old compared to the rest of the country. Wow. Um and and that's we we pay quite a bit in um, provincials uh, provincial income tax because, uh, you know not because the government's inept or greedy although that's part of it but but because we have such an elder population they're not putting as much money as, as younger people so we have to compensate with higher income tax so so we're sort of so in some ways like especially with the housing crisis which we when we had that episode and I argued and I still believe that Canada's Canada was kind of like a canary in the coal mine for what's going on in the United States with the explosion in housing prices. Similarly, I think this country is kind of a bellwether for the uh, retirement and age crisis. That's going to, going to start, you know, affecting both of our countries. So, um, and, you know, I think even so, like it's bad in this country. It's not like old people on the street, you know, like when I order Uber eats, I'm not getting 60 plus, six seventy 70 plus people delivering it to my door. Thank God. But, uh, but the um, those ties are beginning to slip a little bit, you know.
0: What do you think we should do? <laughs> I don't mean like so I won't make you solve society right now, but I, <laughs> what do you think millennials should do? Very little hope of actually following this plan that wasn't really a plan to start with. Um, I know you don't believe in electoral politics saving the day. What do you think we should do?
1: Oh, man. Uh, I don't know what you can do. I mean, that's uh, not to be negative, but, you know, there's only so much. I mean, if you have the ability, like, uh, I think if you if you can't do it through electoral politics, anything you can do towards union organizing is super helpful because unions are kind of like the the sort of edifice upon which you can start to change the circumstances that we're in, maybe not electorally. So you might, you know, you might not still have something that's reasonably replacing RRSPs. You might still have lack of pensions, but like all of the good things in terms of like higher incomes, uh, more benefits, uh, pension plans in your company, all of that comes from union activism, right? Like I'm in a union and the things that my union has done on behalf of our Uh, our workers is astonishing, you know, like we have, we have, we just got a cost of living increase to match inflation, which I think is like 8%, which is wild to consider like a lot of companies. That's just anathema, but the reality is our union has argued and argued successfully and everyone should argue successfully that failure to pay with the rate of inflation is effectively a pay cut every year uh, for nothing. Um, And so, uh, and so our union won us that our union has, kept our pension uh, amid pensions disappearing all across both the private and public sector in this country, they have kept our our pension intact. So I think uh, I think if you know, uh, especially in the US, I would say strong more strongly in the US. than Canada, um, I think electoral politics is probably not going to get you where you need to go. Uh, but but union organizing is a really, really good start and there's a lot you can do to research in, in that. And I would say that's probably your most effective means to to make real change.
0: I would say um, social safety nets, real social connections with people are one of the most untapped resources. And I think that it's no mistake um, or it's no um, surprise that those have been heavily attacked. Um, Maybe by accident, maybe there's just been an effect of the overall um, economic situation, people being way too stressed out to hang out with people. But um, what I'm doing is building social safety nets, having a lot of people connections around me. Um, I live in a community house and um, my hope is that when shit starts to go real bad, we band together. And help each other. Um, we're not going to have power over the powers that be, so there's going to need need to be other like systems in place. But I don't think there will be anything done that is not a bunch of people banding together, um, banding their wealth together, being a an organized body that can um, have power and a voice of its own just by sheer numbers. Um, and that's one of the things that our economy doesn't value um, almost at all is the value of the human being. Um, we are not valued simply by existing. And I think that if I had to um, propose a new economic system after, um, hopefully, you know, something um, internally destroys capitalism in a way that's like very natural. Um, What I would propose is like some valuation system where the money that you spend has to do with your human life, like your valuation just for existing. And it's something that you can spend that is exclusively yours for being a person and social organizing values people that way. That's why it's very powerful because it values people just for who they are not what they do or what they produce it's that they are a being that can say something um that's very powerful so that's my presidential speech for 2024
1: yeah it's good i mean uh i think the issue is that in in north america and this definitely goes for both of our countries i think with the sense of like uh kind of sharing communal spaces and and connecting with our neighbors in a real way is like kind of like transforming our public spaces and almost starting from scratch like we have not our public spaces
0: are not conducive to meeting people and so much of this feels like did they do this on purpose you know
1: yeah like we entirely the like you know, we we people. I think it's starting to now go out of vogue, but we we still talk a lot about third third spaces or whatever third places. And and you know, church has been that for so long in in North America. And and as church has sort of dissolved, and you know, I, I would say mainline denominational churches, like the non psychotic churches that don't want to like turn you into a, a killer robot or whatever. Uh, those those churches have disappeared. We kind of lost that sort of sense of of community focus so i i have this is going to sound extremely trite but sometimes i think if you're in north america and you want a greater sense of community that doesn't just stay within your demographic or doesn't surround drinking you should play pickleball (laughs) because because pickleball is one of those things where you can show up at a pickleball court um you know, and ideally, it's in like a community gym somewhere. Maybe it's at the Y. You'd have to pay like a small fee to go. Doesn't they matter. They have
0: them in parks here in Portland. They got the yeah. trampolines and everything.
1: Because pickleball is one of those things you can show up and you can you can see teams there with like eighteen-year-olds, you can see middle-aged men, middle-aged women, and you can see really elderly people, and they're all playing <laughs> alongside each other. That's cool. And they they also create super strong ties, right? Um, either through rivalry or through forming teams. So I would say like. In lieu of act like rearranging your life around this like myth, <laughs> mythical, you know, social, like we always talk, we give lip service to this, but of course we're doing this via our phones on, on like TikTok, like in isolation in our rooms, talking yes. to our phones. Yes. You know, in lieu of like feeling like you need to get out there and become a community organizer or the next Lenin or something, you could just go play pickleball for a few times, once a month, once a week, it doesn't matter. You start to see people in your community and just laying that sort of, social groundwork is good is start is the start of something you know what i mean and i think that's what people are really lacking now and and uh and i think it's really really incumbent on all of us to sort of push push back against this tremendous uh you know force of social isolation because people want us to be isolated it's convenient to isolate people they don't want us to hang out with each other and and community stuff is all suspect and i mean that's why we're in the situation of Again, people taking huge amounts of personal responsibility because we don't even talk about finances. People are embarrassed to talk about their credit card debt. They're mm-hmm. embarrassed to talk about how much they paid for childcare. They're embarrassed to be honest about, you know, oh, when I was in the depths of poverty, I once bought myself a new used television. And they feel like that's the equivalent of murdering someone in terms of their level of societal guilt. And we just don't talk about it. We, it's all in hushed whispers, you know? And I think if we could get out of that mindset as well, And we get out of this mindset of like taking like feeling the full brunt of social guilt for our inability to save for retirement um, amidst a society that there's really it's impossible to make a living wage anymore. Then we can start to like get past this and start to figure out what we could do to protect each other, you know?
0: Yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm investing in people and bath bombs. And (laughs) those are my two joys in my life and I'm waiting for death. Um, So, you know, that's our episode about retirement. I knew it was going to be dark. I didn't know it was going to be that dark, but (laughs) there we go.
1: Yeah. Well, honestly, um, you know, I, I'm clinging, I'm clinging, I have a pension, but I'm in a you situation, do. I'm in a, a life or death battle with my employer at the moment, but I'm, I'm going to call
0: you when I'm, when you're older than me, and I'm going to be like, still got that pension. You may yeah. need to take me in. You've known well, me. It's,
1: it's funny when I talked about leaving my job, the number one refrain is, but your pension, your pen, like a pension is like the equivalent of like the golden handcuffs, you know, yeah, like the, it is. you have it, handcuffs. don't leave it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's good. I didn't know you had a pension and it sounds like, um, the uproar with your work has settled down, which is good.
1: Well, it's in, it's in, it's in limbo at the moment. Oh, we'll see. Yeah. So, well, Prayers well,
0: that's up. Very good. Well, it's nice to talk to you, sir. You too. I'll see you in two weeks.
1: Sounds good.